Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So, this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast contains references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. It's the night of the 13th of September 1871 and on the tropical Solomon Sea about 160 men are crammed into the hot, airless and dark holds of the Australian brig Carl. The men in the forepart of the ship are from Vanuatu. Those in the aft come from the Solomon Islands. The men between them, in the middle hold, are from Bougainville. While they're all South Pacific Islanders, they're separated not just by bulkheads, but by language and culture. What they have in common is this. In the past weeks and days, they've all been brutally assaulted, captured and imprisoned by the white men of this ship. They've been snatched from their islands and families to be sold as blackbirds. Some men are fearful and frustrated and seemingly resigned to their fates. But the 80 men from Bougainville are from a warrior culture. They'd rather die than live as slaves. To arm themselves, they smash the crude bunks in the hold. Up on deck, the white men shout and shoot their guns and demand silence. But the Bougainville men won't be cowed. They use timber from the bunks to bash at the heavy hatch that stands between them and freedom. Then the night erupts in fire and fury as the white men blast blindly into the dark hold with their revolvers and their rifles. Bullets pierce flesh and shatter bones. The blood of the Bougainville men spatters the walls and mixes with the bilge water at their feet. All through the night and into the morning, the white men shoot through the hatch. They even bore holes through the bulkhead walls so that they can kill more easily. This slaughter is done on the orders of one man. And during the massacre, he's heard to shout, Shoot them! Shoot them! Shoot every one of them! 
I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's Slave Ship Massacre. Over the four decades of the Australian slave trade from 1863, some 62,000 South Pacific Islander people were taken from homes most would never see again. Apologists then and now say that most of these blackbirds came voluntarily. It was supposed to work that way, but often it didn't. And even when it did, the lines between exploitation and slavery were hopelessly blurred. Here's how it was supposed to go. Islanders would be offered a contract, usually for three years, to work 12 hours a day under the hot tropical sun on plantations in Queensland. For this, they got food and accommodation and were paid the princely sum of one pound. One pound per year. Contract finished, they were supposed to be returned to their homes by ships. That was the best case scenario, a voluntary working holiday. These conditions were supposed to be explained by interpreters and adhered to by shipping contractors and plantation owners. Of course, the system was open to any number of abuses, including islanders just not understanding what it was they were agreeing to. Blackbirders also overcame objections by lying about the life that awaited them over the seas. Then there were the blackbirders who simply didn't ask for voluntary recruits and they didn't take no for an answer. These men captured islanders by force and killed those who resisted. Most of the islanders brought to Queensland were men aged between 16 and 30, so individuals in the prime of their lives. Yet plantation conditions were so appalling that 30% of them would die. They were brutalised, overworked, undernourished, housed in unsanitary accommodation and denied medical treatment. In 1884 alone, one in seven islander men then in Queensland died. As a comparison, the mortality rate for white Europeans there and then was 1 in 55. Blackbirding lasted from 1863 to 1904 when, in a final indignity, white Australia policy laws decreed that from 1906, most of the 10,000 or so labourers still in the country were to be forcibly deported. Not to their islands, just to the islands. This was a brutal, shameful part of our history. But its most brutal and shameful moment, at least that we know of, took place 150 years ago this week, and it involved the even less documented practices of Australian blackbirders involved in inter-island slavery. I've given the date of the Carl Massacre as the 13th of September 1871, because that was what was given in the charges presented at the murder trials. Other witnesses, though, said it was on the 14th of September, while the villain himself said it was on the 20th. Whatever the actual date, what happened is in no doubt. Not because the islanders aboard the Carl were found and allowed to testify. Nearly half of them were murdered, and the survivors were sold into slavery. We know what happened because the perpetrators confessed, and they turned on each other. To understand the massacre, we need to understand the man who shouted, shoot them, shoot them all. He's so forgotten today, he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. But James Patrick Murray, Dr. James Patrick Murray, should be remembered because he was one of the vilest characters in our history. A man who was enabled by and emblematic of the evils of the Australian slave trade. On paper and in person, Dr James Patrick Murray was the sort of gentleman the colony of Victoria needed and could take pride in. 
Born in Roscommon, Ireland in 1839, he'd studied medicine at Trinity College in Dublin from the tender age of 17 and received his medical degree four years later. Young Dr Murray arrived in Melbourne in late 1860 and immediately offered his services to the Royal Society of Victoria. He wanted to assist the Exploration Committee which had sent Burke and Wills to make the first south-to-north crossing of Australia. It's not clear in what capacity Dr Murray hoped to serve given they'd left Melbourne for the Gulf of Carpentaria three months earlier and at this stage no danger to Burke and Wills and their party was apprehended. In any case, the young doctor was up for the challenge, writing that the enterprise was, quote, one involving the greatest personal sufferings and dangers. These, however, I accept being animated by an honourable desire for fame and an ardent love of science. Dr Murray's offer wasn't taken up, but he wouldn't have to wait long for the chance to prove himself and satisfy his honourable desire for fame. In the meantime, he became an assistant surgeon at Melbourne Hospital. Through 1861, Dr Murray did see his name in the papers a few times when he testified that a woman who'd tried to drown her children was insane and when he gave evidence about a post-mortem he carried out on a murder victim. With concern for Burke and Wills increasing by June of 1861, the Royal Society appointed experienced bush explorer Alfred Howitt as leader of the Victorian Relief Expedition. His mission? Find the explorers or find out what had become of them. In September 1861, Mr Howitt learned the terrible truth when he found sole survivor John King. Mr Howitt buried Burke and Wills at Cooper Creek before returning to Melbourne. But it wasn't fitting that those great heroes of inland exploration should be left in the outback. So the Royal Society appointed Mr Howitt to return and bring back their remains for burial in Melbourne. This second mission would include Dr James Patrick Murray, who was granted a six-month leave from Melbourne Hospital and was to be paid £250 per annum. Dr Murray left Melbourne in mid-December 1861, joining Mr Howitt at Swan Hill for the long trek north. The leader's letters that chronicled the expedition were accompanied by the doctor's reports on the health of the party. In his correspondence, Mr Howitt had nothing but praise for his medical officer. On the 14th of April 1862, the Argus printed one such letter by then a month old in which Mr Howitt said, quote, I feel every confidence in Dr Murray's skill and judgment. In November, another of Mr Howitt's letters said, quote, Dr Murray, besides having been always zealous for the interests of the expedition, has gained the perfect confidence of everyone by the skill and judgment he has shown in the treatment of such cases as come under his hand. Dr James Murray, 24 years old, was engaged in sacred work. He was supporting the health of a mission meant to retrieve and safeguard the remains of heroic white Christian men who'd sacrificed their lives for the good of the Australian colonies. On the 11th of December 1862, a large proportion of Adelaide's population turned out to pay their respects as the coach carrying the exhumed remains of Burke and Wills made its way through the city to the police barracks. Prominent in the procession, directly behind the hearse on horseback, were Mr Howitt and Dr Murray. There was no doubt this was a sombre day, but for Dr Murray it was also the very definition of honourable fame. By New Year's Eve 1962, Burke and Wills were back in Melbourne in the Royal Society's Hall, where, watched by 50 eminent figures, Dr Murray and a colleague opened canvas packages containing the explorer's remains. Carefully, 
Ceremonially, Dr. Murray and the other medical man reassembled the bones in their rightful places in coffins so the explorers could lie in state and be viewed by 100,000 people over the next two weeks. After that, it was time for the funeral. Here's the Argus's lead paragraph on the 22nd of January describing an event which was the biggest in Victorian colonial history to date. Quote, The mortal remains of Robert O'Hara Burke and William John Wills, the Victorian explorers, were conveyed to their last resting place yesterday. With all honour, the people of Victoria have interred their first heroes. The procession has moved, the funeral eulogy has been pronounced. In the presence of 40,000 people, the dead have been committed to consecrated ground. Melbourne's population was then about 140,000, so this was a staggering crowd. And again, Dr James Murray was right at the centre of things. But the young medical man had brought back more than bones from the interior. He'd returned with valuable specimens of flora, timber and articles that illustrated Aboriginal life. These included a cork tree and a species of what seemed to be an orange. Dr Murray said the latter was in taste somewhere between a watermelon and cayenne pepper. He'd also brought back a native narcotic called pituri, which he said allowed the Aboriginal men to chew and swallow tobacco juice with impunity. Dr Murray was sending these specimens to eminent gentlemen, including Dr Ferdinand von Mueller, Victoria's botanist, Royal Society bigwig, and best friend to another missing explorer, Ludwig Leichhardt. Once Dr Mueller and other experts had weighed in, Dr Murray hoped to include their information in a journal he'd publish about the expedition to find and retrieve the remains of Burke and Wills. Given how quickly he'd established himself in Melbourne, it's strange that Dr Murray left the city so soon after returning from the desert. But to part he did, decamping for Invercargill in New Zealand. It's been speculated he fled Melbourne to escape bad debts. This might be the case, though I've found no evidence to support the theory. From the 14th of April 1863, Dr Murray advertised his services in the Southland Times, setting out his credentials from Ireland and Melbourne, and of course mentioning he'd been part of Howitt's exploration party. The Southland News described him glowingly as, quote, a young man of neat, rather dandified appearance, good-looking and with any amount of assurance and self-confidence, suave and ingratiating in manner. The paper said he was especially popular with the ladies. Dr Murray was soon resident surgeon at the Invercargill Hospital and was also made the area's temporary health officer. He appeared to be popular. In February 1864, a patient sang his praises to the Invercargill Times, saying Dr Murray's unstinting attention had not just saved his broken and badly infected leg, but also saved his life. The good doctor was reported to be collecting money for three children recently left fatherless after a boating accident, and he started the Invercargill Benevolent Institution, which treated the poor and solicited donations of food and clothing from the town's better-off citizens. But Dr Murray also had a lot else going on. His roles, for which he would have received a salary, included inspecting arriving ships for plague and acting as surgeon for the railways, which meant a lot of travel. He also worked for the jails and courts, which meant performing post-mortems for inquests. Some of this work, such as inspecting the remains of two women killed in a hotel fire, was incredibly grisly. Other times his medical legal work was simply curious. 
In January 1864, Dr Murray testified in a false pretenses criminal case in which the accused said he had not written a dishonourable cheque because he had £9 million in the bank. Further, he was the King of Denmark and soon to be married to Queen Victoria. Dr Murray's considered medical opinion was that this fellow was of unsound mind. Outside of his various official and charitable duties, Dr Murray was also community-minded. In September 1864, he served on the local committee that was trying to raise money to send local inventors, manufacturers and artisans to the New Zealand exhibition. One fellow from Invercargill, a Mr Dixon, had invented a gizmo to deter burglars. As the Otago Daily Times reported, quote, On the attempt at housebreaking being made, the machine is so constructed that it would show the word thieves illuminated and also perform the feat of pointing in which direction the foiled robbers had decamped. It was thought desirable to have this machine exhibited as one of the manufacturers of Southland. With so much on Dr Murray's plate, there was a hint of his reach exceeding his grasp and that he wasn't above fibbing to big note himself. In early 1864, he'd written a letter to the Invercargill Times that warned of a potential outbreak of pleuro-pneumonia among cattle. He said he'd observed telltale signs during a post-mortem on an afflicted beast. But a veterinary surgeon named Alexander Stoughton had something to say about that, namely that he'd been the one to carry out the post-mortem and that Dr Murray had not even been present. Further, quote, Reasoning from these false data, he draws false conclusions, whether, quote, through carelessness of observation or ignorance of the subject on which he writes. In early 1865, about as abruptly as it appeared, Dr James Patrick Murray disappeared, leaving New Zealand and returning to Melbourne. We don't know exactly why he left, but it's likely there was some sort of scandal. Any esteemed character, particularly a doctor, who elected to leave a community honourably could expect to be fated with a testimonial dinner and letters of praise in local papers. The fullest account of his New Zealand career and abrupt departure was written more than 50 years later, and it should be noted that this was after Dr Murray was infamous. The writer was a doctor named Robert Fulton, and he penned a series called Medical Practice in Otago and Southland in the early days, which ran in the Otago Witness newspaper in 1920. Dr Fulton claimed that Dr Murray had been given the extraordinary privilege of private practice within the hospital, meaning he could charge public patients, which led to correspondence for the Southland News claiming he treated who he chose and made them pay what he wanted, all the while using public facilities. Dr Fulton also said that all of his other duties led to him neglecting his patients and led to many angry epistles demanding his removal. Unfortunately, the Southland News is not available via New Zealand's digital archives, so I haven't been able to confirm these claims. My guess is that any backlash against Dr Murray was fairly limited and he was probably able to talk many of his critics around. Certainly, it didn't make it into other local newspapers some of which reprinted Southland News articles that mentioned Dr Murray. As late as November 1864, Dr Murray was reported to have performed skillful surgery on a man who'd been badly injured in a circular sore accident. A Southland News article, later reprinted elsewhere, would say this about Dr Murray's departure. After a time, he disappeared from the scene, not, however, if we are rightly informed, before giving some of his patronesses reason to suspect that their protégé was scarcely the exemplary character they had given him credit for being. 
If he'd been widely despised, it was odd that Southland News on the 18th of July 1865 should begin its report about his next Australian career step this way. Quote, We are glad to see that Dr J.P. Murray, who for some time so ably conducted the Provincial Hospital of Invercargill, has been selected by the Victorian Government from a large number of candidates to accompany the expedition in search of Mr Leichhardt as surgeon and second-in-command of the explorers. Dr James Patrick Murray hadn't only been selected by the Victorian Government, he'd been chosen by the ladies of the colony. Ludwig Leichhardt had disappeared in the Darling Downs in early April 1848 while trying to cross the continent from east to west. Fifteen years later, explorer Duncan McIntyre had, about 200 miles from Carpentaria, found very old tracks and two trees marked with elves. Mr McIntyre telegraphed this news to the Royal Society in Melbourne from Swan Hill at the end of December 1864. Then he continued on his way, trekking through the outback into Queensland. So Mr McIntyre didn't know that a ladies' committee had formed in Melbourne under the auspices of Leichhardt's old friend, Dr Ferdinand von Mueller. Their goal was to find Leichhardt, who was almost certainly dead, but just possibly alive and living amongst the Aborigines. The ladies appointed as leader of the expedition the absent Duncan McIntyre. At their urging, the colonial governments of Victoria, South Australia and Queensland pledged a total of £2,000, and the ladies raised matching funds from the public. It was the ladies, reportedly, who decided that the suave and charming Dr James Patrick Murray was to be the expedition's surgeon and its second in charge. By June 1865, Duncan McIntyre had been contacted and agreed to lead the expedition. He was to meet with Dr Murray and other party members and their camels, horses and supplies on the Darling River in western New South Wales. The Australian News for Home Readers approved of Dr Murray, who was, quote, already accustomed to the perils of Australian expedition, and who, in addition to his medical pedigree, was, quote, accomplished in various departments of science, and likely to contribute to the widening of our knowledge of the phenomena of the Australian continent. The article continued. Though the primary object of the expedition is philanthropic, there will nevertheless be many opportunities of scientific discovery, which will not be lost upon a man of Dr Murray's tastes and acquirements. While Dr Murray was second in charge, he would lead the expedition until the rendezvous with Mr McIntyre. The party departed from Glengower, a station northwest of Melbourne that was owned by Mr McIntyre's uncle on the 3rd of July 1865. A correspondent for the Mount Alexander Mail was there to see them off. Quote, it afforded me great satisfaction to make the acquaintance of Dr. Murray. So far as it is possible for me to judge, he is in every way suited to the responsible task of leading such an expedition. All seven men under Dr. Murray, the writer said, were top-notch. The reporter had, quote, No doubt that the utmost harmony will prevail during the trip, even though the strictest discipline be enforced which, if we understand Dr Murray's character correctly, will certainly be the case. The £4,000 that had been raised by the ladies had been well spent, with the reporter going into great detail about the items they were carrying to sustain themselves and give as gifts to the Aboriginal tribes. This journalist made special note of Dr Murray's medicine chest, quote, which is the most ingenious and complete contrivance. 
Every drug, plaster and bandage likely to be required is contained in it, and so well proportioned is it that is not a cubic inch of lost space, and important as it is to the comfort and health of the party, it can be carried about with ease, and in a manner to afford ready access to its contents at any time. A photo of the party, which you can see at the Forgotten Australia supporter page, shows the explorers and their Aboriginal guide posing with three camels. Dr James Patrick Murray sits in the foreground, the picture of dashing youth, high forehead, curly fair hair, a faint smile for the lens. By the end of the month, the party had reached Pumkeri in western New South Wales, with Dr Murray writing to Dr Mueller and the ladies to say that everything was going splendidly. They reached Menendi and camped by the river on the 9th of August. Dr Murray wrote to Dr Mueller and the ladies on the 10th, giving a day-by-day account of the miles travelled, the feed and water encountered and the rest spells taken. The men, he said, had been splendid. Quote, I cannot speak too highly in their praise, everyone working as if the common interest of the expedition were theirs. Ten days later, Dr Murray met up with Mr McIntyre at Mount Murchison. Mr McIntyre wasn't pleased with the quality of the horses that had been brought up from Melbourne, though in one of his letters, Dr Murray had been quick to pin the blame on Mr McIntyre's uncle at Glengower. After the rendezvous, three men were dismissed because they were no longer needed. So, for the next part of the journey, it would be Mr McIntyre, Dr Murray, four other white men, a camelier described as East Indian, though he was likely Afghani, and two Aboriginal guides. They had some 70 horses and a dozen dromedaries to carry five tonnes of supplies. On the 18th of September, Dr Murray wrote again with an update from Paru River in far southwestern Queensland. After they rested the camels for a month, he said it would take them another 40 or so days across to Cooper's Creek and then up into the Gulf Country. So they should be starting the actual search for Leichhardt in the early New Year. He signed off, quote, Again, thanking you for all your kindness, promising to write when possible and to see to the interests of the expedition. But by the early New Year, Dr Murray wasn't in the Gulf Country and he certainly wasn't seeing to the interests of the expedition. Instead, Dr Murray had turned up at Wallambilla, some 400 miles east of Cooper's Creek. On the 9th of January, a telegraphic update came from Dolby. Quote, He reports that all the party narrowly escaped from dying from thirst on their arrival at Cooper's Creek. The party is now broken up. Mr McIntyre is there with two whites, one Indian and 12 camels. All the horses died. Two of the members of the expedition arrived in Dolby today. Dr Murray will be here next week. The weather is very hot and water is scarce. Why had such a well-outfitted expedition, led by two experienced explorers, come to such sudden grief? Dr Murray had sent a letter dated the 4th of January from Wallambilla to a friend named Dr James back in Melbourne. He said everything had been going well, if exhaustingly, until they came to Cooper's Creek and, to their horror and surprise, found there was no water. Quote, McIntyre made a faint effort to examine the creek, but returned in an hour, and gave the orders to fall back on the water. We did so, and more dead than alive, your humble servant reached the Bullock waterhole. But there was no relief. The little water that had been there on the way through had dried up. Quote, Good heavens, what a scene followed. We were all more or less delirious, but I think I was one of the worst. Dr Murray said they'd tried to save the horses, which crowded the waterhole and sucked at the damp mud. 
Then he'd gotten a kick from one of these beasts that, quote, very nearly gave me my quietus. Dr. Murray said he and one or two others had retreated on horseback for their last camp. He said he was left behind on the road during this journey, unable to proceed and surely to die until an Aboriginal man from the party found him and provided shelter for him out of the sun. That night, he met the party's camel drover who was returning with water. Quote, He and Mr. McIntyre had gone on before us the day before, so my life was saved by the infinite mercy of God. Saved, yes, but Dr. Murray said he was also done with the expedition. Quote, All the Victorian portion of the party resolved to proceed no further. Three have returned with me, and one more is still with McIntyre, at his urgent request, until he gets another hand. The men, Dr. Murray wrote, had, quote, been obliged to resort to the most horrible expedients to quench their burning thirst. In other words, they'd had to drink their own urine. Dr. Murray's dramatic letter was published in the Colonial newspapers from the 23rd of January, 1866. In Melbourne, Dr. Mueller and the ladies weren't giving up hope that Duncan McIntyre would be fine and that he'd managed to soldier on and somehow find Ludwig Leichhardt or traces of him. After all, Mr. McIntyre still had the camels and the route north to the Gulf Country was likely to be better watered. As for Dr. Murray, on the 7th of February 1866, the Riverine Herald said what many must have been thinking. Quote, We know of no instance in the history of exploration in which a leader has been deserted as Mr. McIntyre has been. It was evident, the paper said, that Dr. Murray and his companions had turned and fled at the first hint of danger. Quote, we are almost loath to believe Dr. Murray's own account, and strange it is that although there has been ample time since his arrival in Queensland for forwarding full dispatches, we have only as yet received meagre, detached accounts of the very serious affair which induced him to seek safety in flight from the parched country of Cooper's Creek. As for Dr. Murray's sketchy account of how Mr. McIntyre had reacted, well, no one could believe that. Mr. McIntyre knew Cooper's Creek, he wouldn't have given the order to fall back quickly because he was content with making a faint effort to find water, but because the situation was serious. The Riverine Herald said that Dr. Murray's account was lacking in the basics of human feeling and, further, any practical information that might save the lives of the men who were still lost in the desert. Quote, Not one word do we find in it about the probabilities of Mr. McIntyre's living or dying. Nothing to indicate the locality in which Dr. Murray left him. Nothing to show that Dr. Murray and all the Victorians of the party were justified in leaving him. Dr. Murray had also not said whether Mr. McIntyre had ordered him to leave. Given Dr. Murray's own account said that one Victorian man had stayed, quote, at his urgent request, it seemed highly unlikely that the leader had asked the rest to depart. Quote, that looks very much as if the whole of them had intimated their intention of leaving him to fare as best he might, and that on finding they were determined to do so, he had made an appeal to their manliness, to which one, and only one, responded, and that one, not his second in command, Dr. Murray, who should have been the last to desert him. How, the paper asked, had Dr. Murray and the other cowards gotten so far east? They must have had horses and provisions. Given that the public, via colonial revenues and contributions to the ladies, had paid for these resources, the people had a right to answers. If Mr McIntyre had ordered them to safety, then why had Dr Murray not said this first and foremost? 
Worst of all, those who'd fled had made no attempt to return with help. Since Dr Murray's altogether unsatisfactory communications, there had been vague talk of a relief party with camels being sent up from Adelaide. But the Riverine Herald feared it would be too late. Of Duncan McIntyre, the paper asked, Where is he now? Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Duncan McIntyre's voice came echoing from the interior. He'd written a letter on the 17th of December at Wilson's River and the contents were simply extraordinary. He wrote to the owner of a station where the party had stopped and the letter was taken to this man from Wilson's River by a fellow named Mr McDonald. Mr McIntyre wrote, quote, The total loss of 66 horses and the lives of 10 men in great danger all in one day is something quite new in exploring. After leaving the station, they'd made good progress towards Cooper's Creek, camping, quote, where there was an abundance of green grass and water for nearly a week. Mr McIntyre had taken two men in search of a better place to rest, quote, leaving Dr Murray in charge of the camp, with instructions that he move down the creek if the water failed, but not until the water was done. Mr McIntyre wrote that he returned on the third day, having found a new, if temporary, water supply. Quote, on my arrival at the camp, however, I found that Dr Murray had sent the horses and camels six or eight miles down the creek with Mr Gray and two blackfellows. He had got frightened at the water drying up, although there was still plenty of clear water for horses and camels for three or four days longer. Mr McIntyre was ropeable. They now had to follow back down the creek, and he resolved not to leave Dr Murray in charge of anything again. Yet, when they all trekked 66 miles to Cooper's Creek and found no water, he had no choice. Quote, I then started to look for water and told the doctor to follow the tracks back to the last water. If I did not meet him before he got there, I would send water on as soon as I found it. In his letter, Mr McIntyre said he was told what happened next by Aboriginal and white members of the party. Quote, I did not succeed in finding water until within 10 miles of our former camp, and I then immediately sent on 54 quarts. In the meantime, the main party had reached the camp, and the doctor, having been very thirsty, lost all command of himself. He opened the brandy, got quite drunk himself, and made everyone else the same, and in consequence, all went to sleep. About half the horses were unpacked, and the rest were left with their packs on, in the morning, nearly all the horses were gone, packs and all. Mr McIntyre's letter continued. The doctor declared the expedition at an end, saying, We may as well go the whole hog, boys. The Leichhardt expedition is ended. He again got quite drunk, but I have no time now nor convenience to describe half of the disgraceful scenes which took place. 66 of the party's 71 horses were dead or lost. Half the rations and almost all of the instruments had been saved. But Mr McIntyre said he'd only been able to collect these vital supplies by spending the past two weeks trekking through the hot desert on now exhausted camels. Mr McIntyre said he had two white men, the Camelia, and two Aboriginal guides. 
They had sufficient dromedaries and supplies, including that big medicine chest, to get them to the Gulf so that the quest for Leichhardt could continue. Quote, Perhaps I am better, certainly safer, than before, for I am not depending on anyone. Six years on the roads is too little for the doctor. The blacks prove themselves far better than the white men. Billy saved the lives of four men when they were exposed to a glaring sun when in a state of helpless drunkenness. One of the black boys was 90 hours without water and then not helpless as the doctor when 24 hours without. Had it not been for the doctor and his confounded brandy, all the men and 60 horses would have been into water in 30 hours or less. Mr McIntyre realised that Dr Murray, upon reaching white civilization, would try to get ahead of the story, as we call it today. He wrote in his letter, You need not show this to anybody, as the less said about it the better. It will all be found in my journal when I return. You will, however, be able to tell anyone who contradicts what I have here stated that they are wrong. I have no doubts but that the doctor will spread reports to my detriment, but if he does, he may look out when I return. The doctor acknowledged to have taken three quarters of a pint. They at all events finished six bottles between them. By the time Mr McIntyre's letter was published, Dr James Patrick Murray had returned to Melbourne and taken charge of the city's benevolent asylum. It's not hard to imagine his shock and surprise on hearing that not only was Mr McIntyre still alive, but that he'd put his case so forcefully and further was intent on completing the mission that he had abandoned. On the 27th of March, Dr Murray wrote in his own defence to Melbourne's Herald. He said he'd kept silent until now out of respect for Dr Mueller and the ladies. Quote, To incriminate a leader of their choosing without grave cause appeared to me a gratuitous act of selfishness. It would, in fact, be equivalent to indirectly reproaching them with carelessness or incapacity in the conduct of an affair where life and public money were at stake. They will now, I hope, pardon me for speaking, seeing that my cause has become identical with that of truth and justice. Referring to part of Mr McIntyre's letter, in which he said he'd expected to find water at that part of Cooper's Creek, Dr Murray said that this was patently untrue because the explorer, any explorer, himself included, knew that it would be dry, especially given the present drought. Yet, if that was so, why had Dr Murray's first letter written when he believed Mr McIntyre was dead or soon to be dead in the desert, said, quote, We reached Cooper's Creek one morning at two o'clock, exhausted and weary. Thus, judge our horror and surprise to find no water. Dr Murray's letter quibbled over distances Mr McIntyre had described. He also claimed that when he left that first camp, there hadn't been water for three or four days, but merely for 12 to 24 hours. Dr Murray disputed Mr McIntyre's accounts of how long men had been without water. As for the leader sending back 54 quarts immediately, Dr Murray said it was, quote, a couple of hours, or it may be more, during which Mr McIntyre and his blackfellow rested and fed, while his party lay dying of thirst. How he would have known this wasn't explained. Dr Murray said everything that Mr McIntyre had written was bosh, especially the allegations he'd been drunk and behaving disgracefully. Quote, the facts are as follows. Long before we reached the Bullock Waterhole, a point about midway between Cooper's Creek and the water, I was delirious with thirst, and two of the strongest men of the party had completely given in. They had indeed, to use their own expression, lay down to die. 
and this was within a few miles of the place at which we all hoped to find water. He continued, All the party were suffering severely from thirst, few amongst them being able to speak. Many of the horses' packs had been thrown off to enable them to get along, yet some had to be left behind, and the whip had to be freely used with all. They were fast giving in. Dr. Murray said that he and Donald McIntyre, that was the leader's brother, who'd met the expedition, were the first to reach the creek. Quote, We had now been about a day and a half without water, and the weather was frightfully hot. We had had no rest, no sleep, and no food to speak of since leaving the water, and the result was a frightful state of thirst, making some delirious and all unable to work. In the state we then were, had brandy never been introduced, we could not have proceeded on our journey, and, as for attempting to drive on a mob of horses, mad with thirst, eternally splitting up and running watercourses, or lagging behind until whipped along, it would have been utterly and completely impossible. A fresh lot of men would have found the task an arduous one. With us, it was simply an impossibility. So, Dr Murray said, they had had brandy in order to keep working. But he said that three men had scarcely touched any of the brandy. Quote, For myself, I had been delirious for many hours, and the brandy, of course, increased this delirium, but it also enabled me to work, and, aided by another man, I unpacked all the camels before falling asleep. As for Dr. Murray getting drunk the next day, he said, quote, This is untrue in every particular. A lie is asserted, and the manner it is worded renders the crime more unpardonable. Throughout the day, many of the poor fellows had recourse to frightfully unnatural means to quench their thirst. There was no brandy amongst us at this time. In the evening, I fell in with another section of the party, who had a little brandy amongst them of which I partook. The entire quantity did not exceed a quarter of a bottle, and this was divided amongst three. Dr Murray claimed that Mr McIntyre had gotten all of his information from a quote, blackfellow who could only speak a few words of broken English. He said the Aboriginal man Billy had not saved the lives of four drunks, just his, and that was far later than the brandy consumption. Dr. Murray said that there was only, quote, one true and sensible sentence in Mr. McIntyre's entire letter, and this had been when he'd written, quote, you need not show it to anybody, as the less said about it, the better. It was interesting that Dr. Murray should single this out, because it surely reflected what he hoped. But of course, everyone was talking about it. The aide took the doctor to task in a mocking commentary that said his admirers must be delighted to learn that he'd secured himself a tranquil home at the benevolent asylum while Mr McIntyre still faced serious, if not fatal, disaster up in the Gulf. Mr McIntyre's honour and veracity, the aide said, were beyond question. But Dr Murray, with his, quote, air of injured innocence, reluctantly testifying to his own immaculate virtue, was expecting people to believe he'd drunk brandy that had made him more delirious, while also somehow making him better able to work. The paper wondered, not unreasonably, if he was thus prescribing brandy to delirious patients under his care in the asylum. The age alleged that Dr Murray saying his companions had scarcely touched the brandy was clearly so that they could be depended upon to say the same of him. The age wanted Dr. Murray to answer this question. If it be possible for McIntyre and his five companions to pursue the expedition, why was it abandoned by the medical officer of the party? One of the Victorians, as Dr. Murray admits, remained at McIntyre's urgent request. 
Could words more clearly indicate the straits in which McIntyre found himself when he had to beg these chivalrous gentlemen to remain with him and could prevail upon only one even to defer his desertion? On the 28th of April, the Pastoral Times carried a report from the Mr MacDonald who'd been the one to carry the letter from Mr McIntyre to the station owner. Mr MacDonald had just come in from Wilson's River and he was indignant at the quote futile efforts of Dr Murray to attempt to throw the blame of his own cowardice and indiscretion on Mr McIntyre. Mr MacDonald said he'd seen Dr Murray when he'd first emerged from the desert. The doctor had said he thought Mr McIntyre would probably perish out there. So Mr MacDonald had asked which direction the party was and he'd hightailed it out there to try to find them. On his way, he'd seen the scattered and broken camp. And, talking with Mr McIntyre, he'd seen evidence that had been taken from Dr Murray during an interrogation in front of the entire party. Mr MacDonald said it showed that if Dr Murray had obeyed Mr McIntyre's instructions, they would have been able to reach permanent water during the 16 hours they'd wasted drinking and carrying on. Mr MacDonald further claimed that Dr Murray and two men had taken camels and left the three other members of their party asleep after the drinking session. Quote, the doctor then left them to perish, knowing that the horses were gone and that they were weak and 35 miles from any water, which act alone he never will be able to eradicate from his character. Lastly, Mr MacDonald said that Dr Murray had said to Mr McIntyre that he intended to leave the country, and this was why the leader hadn't written anything official to compromise him to Dr Mueller and the ladies. One of the party members, Alexander Gray, who Dr Murray said had only a little of the brandy, wrote a diary. His entry for the dark day of the 28th of November is frustratingly unclear, but it says this, quote, Started to crawl and we made to save our own lives. Donald McIntyre, Barnett, McCalman, Dr Murray, a black boy and I travelled until our horses gave out. Dr Murray went on and left us. We let the horses go and we tried to walk, but we were not able. So we laid down for dead. When the cool of the night came on, we got a little stronger and we crawled along the tracks until we met Belouche, who was the camel driver, with a little water which gave us great ease. We walked into camp about ten. Later, the Barnett mentioned, William Barnett, from Victoria, the one man who didn't desert, would write, quote, at the time of the disaster near Cooper's Creek, it was owing to me that the calamities which happened were not far greater. For, though I could not prevent what took place, I did prevent Dr. Murray from serving the men with spirits of wine, which would, in all human probability, have occasioned loss of life. Clearly, these conflicting accounts would have to be resolved when Mr. McIntyre returned to Melbourne. For the time being though, he and his small party forged on to Burketown on the Gulf where they hoped to get supplies and, if possible, find a surgeon to replace Dr Murray. Just by reaching Burketown, they'd proved the deserters wrong. They'd had no cause to abandon the expedition as hopeless because the small band of men had made it from south to north without loss of life. Yet the newly established settlement of Burketown was rife then with a mysterious fever, so the party camped on the outskirts. In a letter to his uncle down at Glengower, dated the 2nd of May, Mr McIntyre said of this plague, quote, Before I came here, there were about 80 in town, 66 of which were bad with the fever. I am told that 25 in all have died in the town, and they are making coffins for two men who are past recovery. I hope I will get away all right. People are leaving by sea and land as fast as they can. 
The mysterious Gulf fever, which is unidentified to this day, with best guesses saying it was a virulent strain of malaria or typhoid, was to claim as many as 100 victims. One report by a man who survived said that some people would die in a delirium just hours after falling sick. This survivor said he spent weeks close to death and then was unable to eat properly for months before finally recovering. Burktown's residents, he said, were all pale and gaunt like ghosts. Duncan McIntyre did get away, though he thought he'd had a touch of the fever but then recovered. He and his party arrived at Dougald River on the 20th of May. The next day, Mr McIntyre was weak and vomiting, so he retreated to his brother Donald's station at Gilead Creek on the 24th of May. By then, he was very sick and took to his bed. Mr McIntyre's condition worsened. He became insensible on the 29th of May and he died on the 4th of June. Three more of his party were to die of fever and the man who succeeded him as leader would die of apoplexy. Would these deaths have occurred if Dr Murray's drunkenness and desertion had not made the trip to Burktown necessary? Would the surgeon, if he'd still been with the party, been able to save some or all of the men with the contents of that big medicine chest? After Mr McIntyre's death, the Mount Alexander Mail reported, quote, Mr McIntyre had a large medicine chest, fully furnished, but in consequence of all labels being written in Latin, he was unable to make use of the medicines. George Gracie, a bushman who'd been with Mr McIntyre in his final days, gave a statement about the progression of his illness. Quote, he seemed to suffer from some pain in the region of the heart. The medicines principally used by him were salts and quinine. He was not attended by any medical man. His brother, Donald McIntyre, attended on him during the whole of his sickness. Back in Victoria, Mr McIntyre's death led to Dr Murray coming under fresh scrutiny and intense criticism, with the Bendigo advertiser hoping that he felt shame, though it doubted such a man was capable of this emotion. On the 30th of July, the age tore strips from Dr Murray, who it said was cosy and comfortable in his cushy job at the asylum, while his leader lay dead wrapped in blankets in a bush grave in the outback. Quote, it might be too much to charge this gentleman with having directly caused the deaths of McIntyre and the other victims of fever, but can anybody doubt that, had he remained at his post, they would have had a fair chance for their lives? What tangible excuse has he given for his desertion? If it were possible for McIntyre and the remnant of his party to continue the enterprise as they did, what, except rank cowardice, prevented Dr Murray and the other deserters from accompanying them? Dr Murray cannot but have known that his defection left the party absolutely without hope in the event of serious illness. Foreshadowing the sort of hand-wringing that was to come six years later, the age concluded, quote, Unfortunately, conduct like this can be punished only by the force of public opinion, but there are not a few who will regret that it cannot be made amenable to a power still more prompt, sharp and decisive. Those words sounded very much like the age wished that someone would hang Dr James Patrick Murray. Faced with all this shameful criticism, the man in question was smart enough this time to stay quiet. There was no upside to arguing with a dead hero. Besides, Mr McIntyre had perished before he could write up his journals, so all the evidence that was ever going to be given had already seen print. Dr Murray did appear to suffer at least one minor setback. The age was wrong about him still being at the Benevolent Asylum. 
While he'd been hired on the 15th of March 1866, he'd left by the end of June, which coincided with the news of Mr McIntyre's death reaching Melbourne. It's possible he was sacked because of his role in the tragedy. It's also possible he was dismissed on account of another outrage. It'd be reported in the Australasian newspaper years later that Dr Murray had seen fit to take a two or three day holiday from the asylum. Quote, The day after his temporary departure, the asylum authorities were startled at the somnolent condition of the inmates. The poor old folks were all asleep and snoring heavily the whole day long. Dr Murray, this report said, had dosed them all heavily with morphia. Perhaps wanting to lay low for a while, after the asylum, Dr Murray moved to Scarsdale near Ballarat, where, in July of 1866, he was appointed by the government to be the district's public vaccinator. Two months later, September 1866, according to records at Ancestry.com.au, Dr Murray married a 22-year-old woman named Caroline Louisa Patterson at the Christchurch in St Kilda. Despite being born and raised an Irish Catholic, Dr Murray had gone over to the Church of England. But making this marriage had its advantages. His wife's father was Dr James Patterson, who'd been practising in St Kilda for two decades and who'd soon be its mayor. Having such a man as his father-in-law could only help Dr Murray reclaim his respectability. For the time being, he continued to practice in Scarsdale, giving evidence in a November 1866 murder trial. That month, he also felt emboldened enough to announce that he was going to deliver a series of lectures in aid of charity. The first, on the evening of Friday the 16th, had, as its subject, a visit to the graves of Burke and Wills in the desert. It was an incredibly brassy thing to talk about given all the publicity he'd had for another expedition just months ago. But at this speech, the ex-mayor of Scarsdale presided, 150 people turned up and Dr Murray raised £8 for charity. In November 1867, when the Duke of Edinburgh visited Melbourne, Dr Murray was one of thousands of prominent citizens who attended a levy to see His Royal Highness doing so in the company of his father-in-law, who was one of the mayors to give an address to the prince. By January 1868, Dr Murray and his wife were living in Emerald Hill, which is now South Melbourne. Very possibly with the help of his father-in-law, he was appointed local health officer to Brighton Council, which came with a stipend of £20 per year. In March, Dr Murray entered into a partnership with a Dr E.C. Whittenberry of Brighton, operating from the latter's premises at Timperley Lodge. The following month, Dr Murray and his wife had their first child, a son. While it had only been two years since his disgrace in the desert, Dr James Patrick Murray's transgressions seemed to already have been largely forgotten. His political connections, along with his appealing personality and powers of persuasion, were likely such that he could convince many of his doubters that he'd been unfairly maligned. But best not to say any more now because one shouldn't speak ill of the dead Duncan McIntyre. In 1868, Dr Murray was again a medical man on the rise. He regularly wrote letters to the city's newspapers, arguing, for example, that a public subscription should be raised to build Prince Alfred Hospital, and he was a prime force behind, of all things, a Victorian medico-ethical society. Along these lines, in January 1869, a new medical association was formed, and its official publication was called the Australian Medical Gazette. After much internal dissent, Dr Murray edited the first issue. 
The path to publication was a mess, as he recounted in the issue in self-serving detail that cast him as the saviour of other hopeless doctors and befuddled writers. Dr Murray was ousted by the start of March. Even here, it was a case of he said, they said. The Age reported, quote, Dr James P Murray has requested us to state that he has given up his connection with the Australian Medical Gazette. We are requested to state, on the other hand, that the Medical Association dispensed with his services after his connection with the first number. But that didn't prove to be the case because Dr Murray would continue to contribute articles to the magazine on matters such as good ventilation for improved health and the deficiencies of Melbourne's sanitation system. In July 1969, Dr Murray produced a pamphlet on smallpox, chickenpox and vaccinations. This publication set out for a general reader the history and pathology of the poxes, recounting outbreaks over the past 12 years in the colony of Victoria. He recommended vaccinations be performed twice, once in infancy and again at the age of 15. The Ballarat Star noted approvingly, quote, The subject, which is of the greatest possible interest to every inhabitant, is treated in a highly popular way, and the essay should be in wide circulation. While the law may compel the vaccination of children, Dr Murray's essay will have the effect of inducing adults to have the operation renewed or performed for the first time. Dr Murray was far ahead of his times in this respect. But his fallibility had been on display in January of 1869 when he took it upon himself to send to the newspapers a long minute-by-minute account of his heroic battle to save the life of a 14-year-old boy suffering snakebite. Over 20 hours, Dr. Murray had induced vomiting with ammonia, sedated the patient with as much as a pint of brandy, amped him up with large amounts of coffee, tea and other stimulants, all the while loosening and retightening a tourniquet in order to basically drip feed the venom into the kid's bloodstream, while also keeping the patient active and talking for the entire time. But the kicker was that the boy, who'd been conscious and alert when admitted to Dr Murray's care, had told him he'd been bitten on the leg by a carpet snake. These had been long known to be non-venomous. Maybe Dr Murray was just taking no chances in case the boy was wrong. But as he didn't say anything of the sort in this long, long article, it appears he was acting out of ignorance, which was even more peculiar for a man who'd twice trekked the Australian interior. In 1869, Dr Murray had been appointed the assistant surgeon to the Brighton Volunteer Artillery Corps. Through this commission, he met one of its members, the acclaimed poet and equestrian Adam Lindsay Gordon. The two became close friends, with Dr Murray acting as his physician. On the morning of the 24th of June, 1870, 37-year-old Adam Lindsay Gordon used his Artillery Corps-issued rifle to shoot himself in the head while sitting in tea tree at Brighton Beach. Witnesses testified he'd been drinking the night before and, as often was the case, had been excitable and argumentative. Early the next morning, Adam Lindsay Gordon had gone to a hotel and had a brandy. Soon after that, he'd been seen alone and walking towards the beach with his rifle. A police officer said all evidence at the scene pointed to it being a self-inflicted gunshot wound. It fell to his friend Dr Murray to conduct the post-mortem and then to testify at the inquest into the death. Dr Murray said he'd last seen Adam Lindsay Gordon alive on the 21st of June. He testified that his friend was eccentric and unable to take even a small amount of liquor without becoming excitable. 
Further, he'd sustained multiple serious head injuries from horse riding falls and had himself said he thought he was mad. As the Argus reported on the 27th of June of Dr Murray's testimony about his friend's personality and the reason for the death, quote, The brain of the deceased was injured to the extent witness believed that he might be subject to delusions and to attacks of melancholy at all times. Dr Murray testified that the wounds were consistent with Adam Lindsay Gordon putting the muzzle of the gun into his mouth and pulling the trigger, causing a massive and terrible exit wound. The coroner's jury returned a verdict of suicide while of unsound mind. Nearly 30 years later, Scottish-Australian writer and educator Alexander Sutherland, in an account of the search for Leichhardt, wrote in the Australasian newspaper, quote, When the full story of the death of Adam Lindsay Gordon can eventually be written, it will be found that Dr Murray was the evil genius of the poet for some months before that fatal morning on Brighton Beach. Truly a black record for one man. Alexander Sutherland had been 18 years old in 1870. He'd arrived in Melbourne that year as a young teacher at Hawthorne Grammar, so it's unclear how much, if anything, he would have known firsthand of Adam Lindsay Gordon and Dr James Patrick Murray. That's not to say that he didn't hear things later that inspired his evil genius description, maddeningly vague as it is. But in recent times, his comment has been held up as some sort of evidence that Dr Murray was involved in the poet's problems, prescribing opium that perhaps worsened his depression and or refusing to lend him money he needed to pay the printer of his latest book, Bush Ballads and Galloping Rhymes, which was to go on to become a classic of Australian literature. The night before his death, Adam Lindsay Gordon had explained having rifle cartridges to his landlord by saying he was going to practice shooting the next morning as he'd arranged a match with a man he didn't name. This comment has subsequently sometimes been rendered as the poet saying he was meeting an unnamed man on the beach. Ergo, this was Dr Murray who, for whatever reason, murdered him and then covered it up. Tempting though it is to see foul play, there's just no evidence that any such thing happened. Rather, Dr Murray was the leader of the committee whose mission was to erect a monument to the man they called the greatest of Australian poets and the boldest of Australian steeplechase riders. Yet something does seem to have changed in Dr Murray around this time. The day after the inquest, it was announced that he was selling out of his Brighton practice, though this sale was not to go ahead for some time. Over the next nine months, he continued to work in the Brighton St Kilda area, attending serious accidents and conducting several more post-mortems. In February 1871, Dr Murray sold the Brighton medical practice and the following month he resigned as assistant surgeon to the Brighton Artillery Regiment. By then his wife had given birth to their second child, a daughter, and Caroline would soon be pregnant with their third baby. But this was not going to hold her husband back. Dr James Patrick Murray was going to leave his wife, family, friends, colleagues and his restored career behind to go in search of adventure and riches. On the 14th of April 1871, the Brig Carl arrived in Melbourne under the British flag. This vessel, which measured 110 feet in length and weighed 250 tonnes, had come from Batavia with a cargo of sago, rice, coffee and sugar. The car was owned by a Melbourne merchant named Harold Smith, but on the 25th of April, he sold the ship to Dr Murray. Now, the clock was ticking. 
In just over five weeks' time, Dr Murray planned to take the Carl and a handful of financial partners he'd roped into his plan to Fiji. Publicly, he said they were going to buy land and start a plantation. Privately, he wanted to pursue a new career as a blackbirder. A decade earlier, Dr James Patrick Murray had said he wanted honourable fame, but now he'd set a course on the Carl for dishonour and infamy beyond imagination. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's Slave Ship Massacre. Parts two and three are coming soon. If you'd like to see photos and illustrations of the people you've been hearing about, they're available for free at the Forgotten Australia supporter page. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link is also in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.